Hello again, I'm Peter Goodwin with more audio news from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And we start with HIV and the global AIDS epidemic. London school-trained epidemiologist, AIDS activist and writer Elizabeth Pisani has been making big waves about the whole subject with the launch of her new book, The Wisdom of Whores. Except in Africa, HIV's mostly been confined to particular high-risk groups of people so far. But Elizabeth said we've already missed vital opportunities. If you add up people who engage in anal sex between men, commercial sex and drug injection, you have you know, millions of people around the world. But no one was interested in dealing with those groups. So the epidemic has raged on and threatens everybody. I asked Elizabeth what went wrong in the past to make AIDS prevention so unsuccessful. Well, the thing was that we really uh, couldn't get anyone interested in the reality. The reality was, in 90% of the world, it is about... uh, gay men, drug injections uh, and commercial sex in the other 10% of the world but two thirds of the world's HIV epidemic it is about patterns of sexual networking in the general population which support a heterosexual epidemic. Now that's true in East and Southern Africa, perhaps in all of Sub-Saharan Africa it's not true elsewhere. Ergo Africans have more sex, something that you're not allowed to say. In fact it's actually a lot more nuanced than that and it's about patterns of sexual networking, not volume, but there was an automatic rejection of dealing with the truth because it was considered on the one hand in wealthy countries it was considered populations who don't vote who we don't care about and in Africa it was considered racist to even reflect on the truth which is that we need to change patterns of sexual behavior and sexual networking. There was a belief wasn't there that very frequently it was innocent wives who got infected by their husbands who were perhaps using sex workers and bringing the virus home but you've revealed in your book that isn't necessarily always the case. It is the case a lot of the time, and it was certainly the case early in the epidemic, but you cannot maintain a widespread heterosexual epidemic if it's all about wicked men and innocent women. Because if it's about men getting infected in commercial sex and bringing it home to their innocent wives, and that's all that it's about, it stops there. So that's the model that we have in Southeast Asia, for example, where we've had very high rates of infection in sex workers, 30% up to 50% in some parts of Thailand, Cambodia, um, other parts of Southeast Asia. But that doesn't turn into a heterosexual epidemic, a widespread heterosexual epidemic because although men do infect their wives, their wives don't infect anyone else. In the African context, women are only slightly less likely to have multiple partnerships than men are. So it may have started in commercial networks, very, very high density networks, along major transport routes or whatever, but once men infected their wives, the sexual networking that women also engage in allowed it to spread much more widely through the heterosexual population. So you can't just simplify it and say, you know, men are pigs, women are are innocent victims. So women are having multiple partners, men are having multiple partners, and the more multiple partners you have, the more likely it is to spread in the heterosexual population. Absolutely. It's about the time
timing of partnerships as, about, as much as about the number. In fact, in the Western world, in, in the UK, Western Europe, we're likely to have more partners over the course of our lives, but we're much less likely to have two or three ongoing partnerships at any one time. And because HIV is only infectious in very short bursts, what really determines the spread of it is how many partners you have in that, those bursts, in those points at which it's most infectious. Now, could you tell me what you did in Indonesia? Because you went into the brothels, you talked with the sex workers, including transgender people who were living as women but, in fact, had penises. Can you tell me how you went about that work and why you thought it was so important to get to the nitty-gritty of things? You can't solve a problem that you can't describe, obviously. Um, but also, to be honest, I was just curious. I mean, it's really interesting to... I'd, I'd lived in Indonesia previously, I'd worked there as a journalist, um, but I'd never come across these whole subcultures, which are a very important part of, of urban life, particularly. Um, so for me, it was part epidemiological interest, part very clear understanding that that's where transmission was, HIV transmission was focused, so that's where we were going to have to do uh, pro good programming, but also part sheer curiosity. Um, you know, I like to gossip and I like to learn things from people and those were people that I had a lot to learn from because their experience was so different from my own. And you met men who had sex with men and also had sex with women. You uh, found out about people who are having anal sex and the different risks associated with these different kinds of behaviour. What I learned was that um, I had previously worked at the World Health Organization, UNAIDS in Geneva, helping to develop methods for... Uh, for surveillance of HIV and of the behaviours that spread it and we developed all of these incredibly sophisticated questionnaires and we had one questionnaire for sex workers and we had one questionnaire for gay men and we had one questionnaire for drug injectors and everyone fitted in a box and what I discovered was that of course people don't have sex in boxes uh, so everyone has not everyone has any risk at all but of those people who who do have risk they very often have more than one risk so you have a man who buys sex from women but sometimes sells it to men to support uh, his occasional use of injecting drugs for example you have men who consider themselves to be absolutely heterosexual who have wives who have girlfriends and who sometimes buy sex from from female sex workers who will also buy anal sex from transgender sex workers um, because they like the idea of a bit of anal sex but they're straight so they can't have sex with a man but having sex with a transgender sex worker doesn't count so uh, the complexity of human behavior is something that uh, that HIV really plays on very well but how do you prevent sex and what has been going wrong what are the things interfering with all of this the, the, the political ones the religious ones and, and the world movements and of course the money I don't think we need to prevent sex I think we need to prevent high-risk sex, and that means sex between people who are positive and people who are negative with an exchange of body fluids and a high likelihood of, 
of those ruptures of membranes and etc. Um, so we need to be very, very pragmatic about it. But doing that effectively really means thinking about the nitty gritty of who has sex with whom, in which orifice, you know, and with which behaviours. And that is something that no one wants to think about. Even the medical establishment has a hard time thinking at that level of detail. And you can imagine that particularly uh, religious authorities don't want to think about, let alone appear to condone in any way, uh, sexual experience which is not absolutely the norm, what we in the sex trade call vanilla sex, um, because it appears to uh, condone things which the bulk of voters would consider to be, quote, immoral. Now, as, as well in your book as criticising what seems to us to be the stupidity of people who believe that beetroot may prevent HIV. You also praise many African leaders for the openness that they've recently shown in trying to tackle this epidemic. Do you think there's enough openness around the world at the moment to make it eventually be conquered? Sadly, I don't think that there's enough, uh, certainly not enough in sub-Saharan Africa, um, but not enough anywhere, really. It's not necessarily being open about AIDS in that touchy-feely, you know, let's not stigmatize people who, who are infected way. We've got a lot of that. But what we need is more openness about this is a behavior that will have this consequence and lead to this level of infection and then death. So if you have multiple sexual partners, particularly multiple ongoing partnerships, uh, and you have sex regularly without condom use with people who haven't been tested um, for HIV or you don't know are negative, there's a high likelihood that you will contract HIV and eventually die of AIDS. And it seems like such an obvious thing to say, high-risk sex equals HIV equals uh, AIDS equals eventual death. But actually, we've got very, very uh, intelligent and, and well-qualified people, such as the president of, uh, former president of South Africa, Thabo Mbeki, who don't even make that, that direct connection. And if you can't make that direct connection, it's very difficult to do anything about it. And one of the problems is that there is an emotional dimension to this and there's a spiritual dimension that is forbidding people to take actions which, as a scientist, you would see logically are needed. That's exactly right. I mean, we had uh, yesterday uh, an example from uh, the leader of the Catholic Church, um, Pope Benedict, saying not only that, that he didn't approve of, of condom use uh, as a means of uh, preventing HIV, and he said, in fact, condom distribution aggravates the AIDS epidemic. Now, I think he has every right to maintain his own faith-based views about condoms. But what he should not do is to fly in the face of science and say condoms aggravate HIV. We know that that's not true. He knows that that's not true. And for me, that's simply iniquitous. I think everyone has the right to live by their own beliefs but to undermine scientific basis for other people to protect themselves from a fatal disease, I would say is at best unchristian. Elizabeth Pisani talking with me about her new book, The Wisdom of Whores, and it's published by Granta Books of London. There was some exciting news recently from the London School of Hygiene that a massive new project is about to start looking at the way a mother's diet around the time of conception can affect the newly conceived baby's future health. 
Andrew Prentice is one of the leading members of the team looking at what they're calling an experiment of nature that's currently happening in the Gambia. It's possible because the amount and type of food mothers have available to them depends on the growing season for crops. For about two decades now, probably the most exciting new findings in human nutrition have been related to how very important the diet is during pregnancy and the effects that has on the fetus and the fact that it can have lifelong effects on, on health up to 60, 70, 80 years later. Now the question is, how can that occur? How can we have effects that last that long? And more importantly, how can those effects even move generations? Because we think of babies having genes that they inherit from their mother and their father. And in the sense of Charles Darwin, you either have a gene or don't have it. So what does the diet do to the baby at the time of conception? That's correct. The genes we have would normally be passed on um, accurately and precisely and give us our, our heritable characteristics. Um, but what is known is that the way in which genes are expressed can be changed by a chemical coating on the DNA. Um, if methyl groups are added, this can prevent certain genes from being expressed and by manipulating those genes that are expressed and those that aren't, it gives a different effect on health. So even though you may have a gene for, for instance, not having diabetes, if it's not expressed, you might even be at risk of that disease. That's right. And indeed, the manipulation of which genes are expressed and which are not are, is in fact fundamental to the, our whole body because every cell in our body contains the same genes, but obviously all cells are different because those genes are expressed in different proportions and in different ways. So can you tell me what you're doing? You're doing a sort of natural experiment in the Gambia. Could you tell me what that experiment is and how it's going to work? Well, the background to this is that we know that in mice, by changing the maternal diet, we can change these patterns of so-called epigenetic imprinting, and we can change how the baby mouse looks. Um, so there have been classical experiments done with coat color and with uh, a, a thing called the kinky tail in mice, which can be straightened out by changing the maternal diet. Now, what we want to do is to ask whether this can also occur in humans. So what we need is an opportunity where women are on a, a very poor diet at certain times of year and at better diets at other times of year. And we have such an opportunity in the Gambia um, because women there go through a hungry season each year where they start to run out of food from previous crops. And then when the harvests come in, they're in a, a radically different nutritional status. So we're going to look at babies conceived in those two different times of year and see whether the maternal diet has had an effect on how those genes are coated with the methyl groups. So how will you eventually find out whether a baby is more at risk of uh, cardiovascular disease, for instance, or cancer or diabetes as a result of these changes you're looking for? Well, in a way, we won't find that out from this study. What we're, we're trying to bring together bits of information from two directions. We already know from epidemiological studies that children born at this time of year or, 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 or to mothers who are poorly nourished do less well. So now what we're looking for is the mechanism. How is it possible that that, that can be imprinted, can be programmed in the organism for many years hence? Now, can you explain to me why this work is important then? Well, at the end of the day, if we could discover that maternal diet did change patterns of imprinting, then of course we could change that diet or at least recommend to women that they would change that diet and, and possibly have a profound effect on health. 
Indeed, it's believed that um, folic acid supplementation, which is known to affect, um, to reduce the risk of neural tube defects in babies, that that is indeed is going through an epigenetic pathway. This sounds like very, very fascinating science, crucially important science. However, there are a lot of people who would like a bit of advice from you right now. What would you say to people who are worried about diet and, and maybe about to conceive? Well, I think the first and most important thing is to say do take your folic acid tablets. This is very well known, very well propagated through lots of media and so forth, but take that one very seriously. It is probably the most proven effect on reducing neural tube defects. So a good diet in general, and uh, for people in not only in, in, in the developed world, but also in the developing world, avoid being overweight. Being overweight in pregnancy is one of the largest risk factors and has a variety of different def detrimental effects. And you said a good diet in general, but could you just specify just a little very, very briefly? Well, I guess it would be the, the kind of things that we're saying the whole time, plenty of fruit and vegetables, not too much fat, not too much energy altogether so that you maintain a good um, body weight, uh, and, and the general not too much uh, refined sugars, not too much saturated fat. Um, so all the advice that would generally be given, but is more important in times of conception. Andrew Prentice talking to me at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine the day after his colleague Branwen Hennig began the massive study now taking place at the MRC laboratories in Keneba, the Gambia. We wish her well. Now drugs and alcohol and why the obvious approaches to reducing the risk of young people being affected by them don't always work. Another London School expert has just published an article on this in the journal Public Policy Research. He's Adam Fletcher and he's been telling me what they've been doing about this in the United Kingdom. The aim of this article is to outline the limitations of existing youth services really um, and suggest why they might not be working in terms of reducing the harms associated with young people's drug and alcohol use at the moment. Um, particularly two services, the Connections Youth Service, which is um, a very individually focused service, and also Youth Centre um, services. We suggest that these may not be the most effective services. I know that in Britain and indeed many countries there are centres set up to advise young people and also there's a system in some countries of having mentors who actually go along and talk with a young person and help them decide about important things. Uh, these, you're saying, might not be the best way forward? Um, in terms of reducing problematic drug and alcohol use among some of the most vulnerable young people and some of the most socially marginalised young people, we think there are key limitations associated with these. For instance, um, a project such as a mentoring project or one-to-one um, -one casework with young people, it very much ignores influences such as peer pressure and um, the role of young people's wider social networks on their drug and alcohol use. So we think, you know, may suggest why some of these problems persist in the UK and elsewhere at the moment with much of the focus on, on this type of work. Um, you, in terms of centre-based work, yeah, it's a very common approach for people to provide youth work through 
through community-based centres. And again, we suggest that these may have significant limitations in the sense that they don't always reach the most vulnerable young people who don't like those sort of institutionalised settings. Um, young people who aren't already in contact with those services might not be reached. Um, and also they potentially can be harmful to young people by, by bringing them together and introducing them to new, new young people. So if you get a large collection of naughty boys and naughty girls together, they might be even more naughty. Uh, possibly, yeah. Uh, and that's very much why we're suggesting in this paper that detached youth work could be a much more appropriate and promising model because it works with existing peer groups. Now, I've got to ask you what you mean by detached. Uh, detached youth work is, is also sometimes known as street-based youth work in the, in the United States and, and other terms elsewhere. Um, and really what it's about, it's about working with young people on their own territory so not in community centres and youth projects, but out on the streets or in parks or anywhere that young people sort of hang about and socialise, really. And it's about youth workers going out there and actively trying to find uh, some of the most vulnerable groups of young people and support and engage them on their own terms um, through this street-based or detached model of youth work. Um, and then work with those groups of young people um, in their own existing social networks and through understanding their own identity to plan and deliver activities and projects and um, and things like that that young people want want to be involved in. Detached youth work very much focuses on young people in their existing peer groups, doesn't seek to sort of change these social networks or, or re-engineer them. So we, th we think for that reason as well, it's particularly well equipped to deal with this problem. It's exactly the opposite of uh, approach used in some countries, including the United States, where they send uh, delinquent young children off to boot camps to be pure for nine months at a time. It, yeah, it, very much. And it's, it's some of those interventions which have sh particularly shown to be harmful, where you select at-risk individuals and push them all together. Um, and there's lots of evidence to say that this approach can do more harm than good. Um, and I think people need to be aware of that, to be honest. But, you know, we need youth services you know, in order to, to promote young people's health and well-being, but they need to be delivered in the right way to make sure that they, they don't do more harm than good. Adam Fletcher, ending this edition of Audio News from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. We'll be back soon with more, so until then, from me, Peter Goodwin, goodbye.